Welcome to episode 31 of the Media Sport podcast series, which I'm proud to say is now in its fourth year of existence and many thousands of downloads down. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and I'm presently sitting in the radio studios in the Monash Media Lab at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Joining me via Skype is Adele Pavlidis from Griffith University in Brisbane. As this series has highlighted on a number of occasions, the study of gender, sexuality, intersectionality and feminism in sport is experiencing a welcome renaissance at this moment in time. Adele is one of a number of scholars producing important scholarship that shows why sport is a key social, cultural and political site for the construction and contestation of gender and sexuality. This function is underwritten by both the power of sport as a site of institutional and social power and the everyday and habitual practices that literally change the bodies and emotions of the women, girls and men who play. Adele's sociological research leads the way in showing how these processes of transformation unfold in sport and leisure. I first came across her work in her book Sport, Gender and Power, The Rise of Roller Derby, published by Routledge and co-authored with Simone Fulliger. Her articles and chapters have appeared in a range of leading outlets, including the International Review for the Sociology of Sport, International Journal of Cultural Studies, Leisure Studies, Sport and Society and Journal of Sociology. She is also an Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Researcher Award recipient, known by the acronym DECRA, partly because, of course, the length of that title. Um, and her three-year project, Women and the Rise of Context Sport, is the thing she's working on at present, and we'll be speaking about that. Some context is necessary for international listeners. DECRA fellows enter into an extremely competitive and arduous peer review application process and as a result, a DECRA is rightly regarded as a prestigious award and a major achievement. I'll be presumptuous enough to speak on behalf of the audience and state that Adele is a deserving recipient and we all applaud her. Adele, welcome to the Media Sport podcast series and thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me and for that lovely um, and very generous welcome. I want to begin by declaring my hand. My exposure to roller derby comes through the movie Whippet, listening to an interview with the Texas roller girl and trans athlete, Fifi Nominan, and of course your research, which basically means I have a general knowledge at best. For the uninitiated, what is roller derby and why is it socially and culturally significant? Wow, that's a, a big question. What is roller derby? Um, uh, you can start with it's a it's a, a sport played on roller skates, um, played on a flat track in the contemporary version, but there's also a bank track track version. It is a sport that's being uh, revived. So it was a very popular sport in the 60s and 70s, and then I guess you know like. Like some sports, it started to disappear from the sport landscape. And then in the early 2000s, there was a definite revival. And the initial revival was a all-girl um, sport. And it was uh, specifically a parody of the old version. So um, you can watch some documentaries like Hell on Wheels, for example, and they show how this revived version was very much about poking fun at the old kind of ideas around fake wrestling um, and sexuality. So they might have uh, 
different penalties um, that were kind of cheeky and they wore costumes, they had um, these names. Uh, it was, yeah, it was really a playful space connected to a lot of music cultures and that revival happened in the USA. Then uh, that spread throughout the world, the UK, Australia, Canada, and it's now pretty much, I think, on most continents of the world. So, yeah, to, to, it's a sport, but it's also some people might call it a subculture. But more and more it's becoming this idea of a serious sport. And so your second question about why it's culturally and socially significant, it's just an unbelievably rich field to examine a whole range of uh, gender relations, uh, uh, sport practices, uh, sport development, um, looking at, you know, a new sport emerging in the landscape that has a specifically a focus on women and how that growth has happened over the uh, past I guess nearly a decade. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of questions about leadership, about ownership, authority, who gets to claim what roller derby is, how it's played, the rules of play, uh, things like, you know, uniforms, uh, rules, everything is like in other sports, but just in a different way. Everything's very much contested. And because it has this feminist ethos to it, you know, people really speak out, speak up against things. Um, yeah, it's just a, an amazingly rich site for so many things. When you talk about feminist ethos, I mean, this obviously introduces the idea of feminisms. I mean, what sort of contestations around identity and practice are going on there? Um, so there are, I mean, uh, prior there was it was very much about a women's only sport and the governing body the wufta uh, it's called wufta the women's flat track roller derby association they didn't really have a um say like a gender inclusion policy to start with and there was you know it, it, it's taken them quite a, even though the whole sport is founded on these values around revolution and um, equality and empowerment they hadn't thought about trans women or uh you know people um, non-gender uh, identifying. So, yeah, that, that's only been a more recent, I guess, update to their policies in what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of women are they talking about. Also, they were very much in the beginning um, uh, separate from men. So it was about having a women's sport, majority women leadership, but men were also starting to play this new sport. Um so now uh, roller derby is a, a bit more inclusive of partnering and I guess working with men's leagues. This is the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. So that's um, based in the US and they claim governance of the sport internationally, which, you know, it's interesting. So in the Australian context, we have, um, you know, systems of national sporting organizations, which are funded by government. Um, and then we have our state sporting organizations and we have uh, Skate Australia, which when roller derby emerged was providing insurance and you know was set to i guess you know be a governing body to provide that service but the women's flat track derby association saw yeah they see themselves as that governing body um and yeah there's tensions within um, the international federation of roller sports as well because uh yeah there's a push in some camps for uh roller derby to become an Olympic sport, for example. But that requires 
you know, to be incorporated in one of these international federations. And, um, yeah, so there's all these contests. So in terms of gender relations, there's these ideas. So women who see themselves as maybe athletes um, and want to pursue a different form of the game that's faster. Um, there's, uh, yeah, there's so many uh, different lead, you know, this idea of for derby by derby. That's a really the ethos for derby by derby. So this, uh, it's a DIY sport in a way. But uh, how that works in practice when it's now very huge, it's an international sport, having something DIY at that level is, you know, you can see some of the challenges. So in terms of the social cultural field, um, it's a great window into some of the tensions within maybe feminist organisations, how different uh, feminisms uh, have to try and work together and the challenges with all of that. So, yeah, a lot of different people vying for leadership, authority um and yeah what is the role of men within these organizations so men are often coaches referees but they do play but they're also partners brothers they're i mean you can't look at uh this idea of women in isolation because we live in a world with men and women so yeah in my work i've tried to you know how do we you know acknowledge that men are there uh, and what are that what is their role let's be explicit about it rather than not talk about them that they're there but they're influencing anyway um yeah so now do you uh i suppose in the conduct of your research uh, how did did you went do you play or what's it like to attend and attend events yeah i did um i did first i i went to a bout and i i was really excited by it and so i joined a league and uh i wasn't very good at roller skating but i trained really hard I trained twice a week for two hours, and then I skated every day of, of my PhD, basically. I <laughs> roller skated every day. And, yeah, I passed the minimum skill set, which uh, at the time was 25 laps in five minutes. Now I think it's 27. It's a quite a rigorous minimum skill set. So this idea of inclusion, you know, then you see the governance of rules and regulations layered on top of this discourse of inclusion. So, you know, I had to be able to jump a certain height, um, you know, so I could jump over a person lying down, which I thought was amazing, um, and uh, skate a particular amount of laps in a certain amount of time and, yeah, all these other skills that you have to be able to do before you're allowed to actually play a game, which is different to other sports like, you know, hockey or soccer. There's not this, you know, you can just go and have a go, but there's a lot of safety concerns. So this idea of safety and risk and risk management is is central to roller derby. So the perception is that it's um, risky and dangerous, but there's so many uh, strategies and and governance layering in place uh, to avoid, I guess, risk and injury. So the, there's pat, you have to wear elbow pads, knee pads, helmets, mouth guard, and you have to pass this minimum skill test in order to be able to play at a competing level. Wow. And you've also written about roller derby in China. What's, yeah. What, yeah. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, that was really interesting. I had that opportunity through um, a partnership Griffith had with Peking University. So I went over to Beijing and I spent a week with the Beijing uh, Roller Derby League. And I, um, yeah, just hung out with them and, and, and interviewed a few people and went to a skate bowl with them. And, um, yeah, just to see the spread of roller derby in, in around, around the globe. 
And, yeah, it's just really interesting because most of the members there were um, expats, so they were coming from other countries. Some of them had played roller derby in their home country and and were wanting to play roller derby there. Other people had never played roller derby before, but they were just kind of looking for something fun to do and they liked roller skating. But there was a real sense of this, um, yeah, this idea of a feminist ethos about the DIY kind of ethic came out really strongly, um, which is quite quite interesting in China where, uh, you know, uh, the bureaucracy and and government is a lot more, I guess, you know, things are a lot more structured in a way for certain sports and the way the sport is governed. So, um, yeah, they really emphasise this DIY. They they love that about it. Um, Also, the independence of the sport was really important. Um, yeah, so I, I was looking at it as a type of feminist intervention, I suppose. And those ideas, there were some um, local uh, Chinese women that were in the team, and they started talking about things like gender fluidity that they learned through, uh, you know, people that had come to play roller derby. And they were saying, you know, that this is the idea in roller derby about gender fluidity. And, um, you know, people would say, oh, you're a tomboy. And, um, yeah, they were really challenging a lot of these ideas. They were very highly educated, so, you know, that's important to note, um, the women that were involved, whether they were local women or the expats. Um, but, yeah, they were bringing these ideas together and, and and gathering, whether for skating, training or league meetings. They were fundraising. They were putting on events. They even partnered with um, UN for Women, uh, the Asia branch um, to and they sponsored an event that they had an exhibition bout. So yeah, it's just fascinating to see. I guess I mean that's your one of your areas is globalization of sport um, and yeah the globalization of roller derby. And I've just recently done some interviews with um, just a couple of players in Lebanon, mm-hmm. and that's uh, quite a different uh, case where. Even though the expats started the league, the locals have taken over and they're really thriving. But then you've got issues around, um, you know, uniforms. So roller derby, you know, there are some articles about roller derby, derby uniforms and, I guess, sexualization. They wear, wear short shorts and they used to wear fishnets. They don't really do that anymore. Um, but there it's very much about modest dressing. Um, so, yeah, and the translation there. But it's still about feeling strong and having something just for themselves so, yeah, it's really fascinating to see the spread of the way, yeah, sport can carry a culture and, and also change a culture and then it changes the sport itself. So opening it up to the world. And you mentioned the word feeling there. A lot of your work both about roller derby and indeed leisure practices and sporting experiences more broadly deals with affect and emotion. Yeah. Why, why is it so important in your mind in terms of trying to understand the, these subcultures and, and the sorts of things that go on across sporting leagues? That's a great question. Um, I, I guess I, you know, there's there's something, you know, in uh, theories of affect and emotion that have enabled me to talk about and write about roller derby and other leisure practices in ways that don't, fix these ideas that keep that enable them to be open um, and and fluid and thinking about the ways that for um, in roller derby the women talk about feeling strong and feeling um, powerful so I thought they were really interesting affects to think through 
in writing about the potential of this sport to transform, you know, gender relations or even to transform individuals. So connected with affect and emotion is that idea of transformation that you first talked about when you introduced me. And that's a key idea in my work about, yes, social, cultural and personal transformation that can happen through sport, through people coming together. So, yeah, theories of affect and emotion have allowed me to talk about that in ways that, yeah, I'm not looking for some kind of internal drive or, you know, just this um, internal answer to some kind of problem. I'm much more interested about the ways things come together and connect, um, sometimes only for a certain period of time. But in that time, how can we think about these connections and relations and, and the flows of affect through them? And it's it's a funny idea, but a lot of work I've read, and I'm not necessarily talking about your research, but a lot of work on sport and emotion often deals with notions of self-realisation, liberation, empowerment. And I suppose the other side of affect and emotion is also frustration, disappointment, anger, a lot of what we might regard as negative emotions, but of course, this is simply part of a broader range of emotional experiences. How do you think about that 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 sort of spectrum of emotions? Yeah, um, I mean, to me, that's really exciting. In in the book, Sport, Gender, and Power, there's a chapter on um, those, I guess, other emotions about feeling um, uh, the feelings of bully, bully. Some women felt bullied, frustrated. They felt really hurt. So even though they might have been really excellent at roller derby at the sport itself, they felt excluded because of the types of the culture or or they felt frustrated at the lack of opportunities for development as athletes. Um, and, and also this sense of failure. So I'm really interested in the productivity of failure and loss as as affect. So, um, yeah, again, at the moment, I'm um, looking at images of loss in the news, loss and failure in, um, in newspapers surrounding coverage of women at the Commonwealth Games, just to think about how do we, you know, sport is all about success and, you know, win at all odds, but it's also about loss and failure more so. I mean, if you're playing sport, you're going to lose more than you win, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, training the grind of everyday sport and the frustrations of not getting better and, setbacks and injuries and pain and I just think we haven't really looked at that enough in terms of women's sport because we haven't taken them seriously enough so yeah I think that's a really important site to further examine these I guess negative in in, you know inverted commas emotions and affects and the productivity of those so um, you know uh, Elspeth Proben writes about shame and that's been a really interesting emotion or affect to explore through roller derby. Um, you know, and, and roller derby is a really interesting site because it was hugely popular in the resurgence. There was so many leagues across Australia, across the world, a lot of women playing. And it, it was really exciting because a lot of those women hadn't played sport before. So, you know, everybody wants to get people active. And here we had you know, a sport that got women who were previously inactive, active. So that's fantastic. But then a lot because of internal politics or lack of procedures, support, development pathways, you know, the culture, social cultural aspects, all of these things, a lot of women dropped out, a lot of leagues dismantled. So, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot for us to learn from looking at, yeah, failure, loss, 
frustration um, and, and those other affects. Because that's part of life anyway, you know, it's not all happy and joyful. So, Tell me about the project that did get funded, Women and the Rise of Contact Sport. How did it come about? What are you trying to achieve through it? Oh, at the heart of the project um, is this, uh, you know, I'm really interested in the sustainability of the current I guess, you know, surge and popularity and growth and opportunities for women in sport. So, you know, opportunities for women are often, you know, we get two steps forward, but then there's a, you know, maybe a backlash, just like we see a backlash against feminism. So, yeah, interested in the sustainability of sport. And I'm also really, um, I did my PhD strangely in a sport management department, which, um, you know, I learned a lot because I did I did an arts degree. I did my honours in sociology, and then I ended up in a sport a business school in in a sport management department. And um, I, I I've become really interested in organisations as a site uh, and a potential space of change. So rather than just looking at what the problems are, looking at then how can organisations support change. So this project, the Decra project, is looking at three silos which are often but not always looked at separately so sport media and sport sociology and uh, sport and organizations so trying to think across those spaces and using some uh, different theoretical ideas around the sport assemblage which you know a lot of people talking about assemblages these days but um the ways that you know different things come together how how does sport and the sport opportunities materialize in different spaces. Um, so that is the focus of the DECRA, is yeah, looking at these three silos together, trying to read across these fields in some way and seeing what new information can be garnered. And also one of the key questions of this DECRA um, is, so with this increase of women in uh, leadership, participation, um, you know, elite levels, how will this change what sport is? Uh, will it, I mean, will it change what sport is and how we understand it? Uh, you know, what changes in organisations will need to occur as women uh, come into that mix? Um, what changes in sport media will occur? And I think we already see a lot of that with, you know, um, I love uh, social media where, you know, if somebody posts a sexist article or or if something happens that, um, you know, we all know is not quite right in the treatment towards women, then people will speak out. You just can't get away with it anymore, which I love. Um, yeah, so that is the main decra. So that because I'm using this concept of an assemblage, I'm looking at um, so interview, interviews with uh, players at varying levels, um, interviews with administrators and other team entourage. So at the moment, I'm going through a process of interviewing um, high-performance coaches, and that is just so fascinating, I must say, from social cultural perspectives. Um, these are people with a really solid understanding of the body mechanics, but also they, they have a, a really clear understanding that um, you can't separate the mind and body uh, because it's about performance. So, um, yeah, the, they have these coaching philosophies and all these things, but my interest is about their perceptions and understandings of sex and gender, and already the data's just been 
unbelievable uh, with some talking about how sport is just uh, a neutral field, you know, when it comes to sport, you know, there's not really gender different. I mean, one didn't know what gender meant, um, only knew sex. Uh, and then there were others who talked about how, uh, and this was a, a woman, which there's not many women high-performance coaches, but she talked about how, you know, it's actually really challenging to talk about the subtleties of gender difference um, because it's same but different. And I was, I was really interested to, to talk to her about that. And we're doing some visual methodologies, asking them to draw out um, these bodies and mark what aspects they see as kind of feminine in those bodies and how that affects the body systems and what are the strengths and weaknesses. Just trying to, because these are people that are highly influential in sport training elite athletes so having an understanding of their conception of sex and gender is important yeah so there's that aspect and then looking at social media as well so um and one of the key areas there i'm looking at is how do men um, engage with women's sports online so looking at um uh, male athletes actually so looking at the captains of a number of sports teams and just uh, looking on Twitter and looking at how they engage with women's sport. Do they celebrate it? Do they support it? Do they ignore it? You know, I note in the title the term contact. What do you, yes. why, what does that signify? Why is that important? Um, this idea of uh, a woman's body as fragile is an idea that I think has persisted and continues to persist uh, despite um, women, you know, We've got second wave feminism and third wave feminism and, you know, women can do anything. We saw that poster. Um, but, yeah, this idea of women's bodies still in need of protection, I mean, we, it, this has impacts, uh, you know, outside of sport. You know, when a woman is raped and police come out and say maybe they shouldn't have been walking alone or they shouldn't have been out at night, you know. So um, looking at contact sport is just making more explicit this idea of the body, the, the power of the, the body and um, challenging ideas of female fragility. You're obviously early in the project. You're around um, six to seven months in. What sort of, compared to what you perhaps were expecting to find, you know, what are some of the things that perhaps challenging your preconceptions or making you think differently or in terms of an original research contribution? I think, um, yeah, these interviews with the high-performance coaches are really challenging me in a way, um, particularly to, um, you know, there are change agents within sport that are thinking in quite nuanced, sophisticated ways. You know, they're not just, um, you know, thinking in very uh, binary terms about good and bad or men and women. They're, you know, they are already uh, thinking in these kind of complex uh, interdisciplinary ways and that's really exciting and I think it's really exciting for me to be able to then make that visible and to communicate that um, to show you know what is already in there and maybe what we could do more of as well so that's really exciting um, what else has been um, interesting I think uh, some of the ideas that have started to develop so some of my interviews with uh, sportswomen who are now in teams that are getting paid and a lot of them express a lot of gratitude and optimism. So I'm looking at this idea of gratitude and um, and thinking about, you know, how does uh, too much gratitude leave them vulnerable within organisations? 
And then thinking about kind of flipping it and, you know, how can the men in those sports be grateful for the women coming in? So the women are so grateful for the opportunity. But I think that maybe the men could be a bit more grateful in what the women are bringing to their sport. You know, in cricket, you've got cheating. So women are really helping to shift those perceptions. Um, you know, in AFL, rugby league, you've got all these allegations of domestic violence, sexual abuse. So women are bringing in, um, you know, new fans. They're making family-friendly environments. And they're, yeah, I think they're a really positive force in these organisations. And um, so that's that's been really exciting to think about. You know, I think that, yeah, a lot of these traditional kind of men in inverted commas sports will start to see that, it's not just about um, the economic imperative, which in my original round of interviews earlier in the year, a lot of the people uh, talked about bringing women in as uh, making good business sense, which is a little bit frustrating to think that that's the only reason why um, uh, they do these things because oh, they can see the opportunities. But um, it's good to, to see this shift. It's more than just money. It's social, cultural, um, political um, yeah, even in terms of sustainability, I think, yeah, having it, – it's just these days in life, sport is one – I guess it's the last bastion of sex segregation where things are so clear-cut between men and women. And, um, and yeah, there needs to be more opportunities for men and women and girls and boys to play together. And, you know, maybe not at the elite levels but in training, in leadership, in all other aspects that it doesn't matter – why not? Yeah, so more of this uh, relational approach. Did so a lot of different you... things coming up, um, and we'll see where it all goes. No, it's, a, it's a challenge, particularly in such a big project. Um, did you see that national survey of the, sort of uh, the public survey on the reputations of our national sports teams? Yes, uh, four women's teams in the made top the top ten. four. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. You know, I mean, it's... It's so fantastic. Um, I really need to talk about just quickly some of my findings. So, all right, we've got these top four teams, the women's teams, fantastic. Um, we've got, you know, great broadcast deals. We've got women entering into all these fields. We've got a, a, a woman CEO of a, a Sport Australia. Unbelievable. And then I talked to uh, administrators and sportswomen at um, you know in one of these professional leagues and even though they talk about you know there's this idea that it's women's time you know and I think that we can see it's women's time we're at a historical moment and yet those women are still thinking about they're doing it for the future you know for girls of the future because they're not really they're sacrificing a lot now so even though it's women's time there's still um yeah, it's still not really benefiting those women now. Yeah, so it's an interesting kind of tension between kind of the past, the present, and the future. And, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, yeah, this idea of women's time, I don't think it's a separate to men's time because men are still having a great time, in, you know, as athletes and as leaders in sport. Um, women are nowhere near that. Um, but I guess it's time to really – it's women's time to come to the table and start to show, you know, you know, we're showing really as, as in research, leadership, uh, you know, sport more generally. Yeah. We're, I think, contesting what sport is, which is, yeah, the heart of my decor. So. 
A question I ask of all my guests, and you've spoken about a lot of issues, but could you recommend a book that you believe listeners should read? I, one of the very influential books that I read right at the beginning of my PhD was Elspeth Proben's Outside Belongings. And, yeah, I, I just found that to be a, just a fantastic um, not only theoretically, but the writing and the way that writing, uh, academic writing can move us in certain ways. And, uh, yeah, I just admire her work so much and also the way that she writes about affect and emotion in a way that, yeah, we can, we can start to pick up and use and reflect back to different kinds of situations. And, yeah, that would be maybe, you know, and it's Australian, so like to promote Australian work as well. So and that's yeah, outside belongings. And for anyone uh, wanting to look that book up is unfamiliar with Elspeth's work, it's P-R-O-B-Y-N, Proben, so, which is reasonably important if you're using your search engine of choice. Um, Adele, thank you for sharing your time and insights with me for the Media Sport podcast series, and I wish you all the best with the remainder of the Decker, which sounds fascinating. Thank you so much.